1: Do you know what it's like to read about the Civil War for more than 50 years and then find out that there's a significant military campaign so untouched by historians you've never even heard of it, even though it could have conceivably ended the war in July 1863? I do, because I've just read about the Blackberry Raid in the new book, Gettysburg's Southern Front, Opportunity and Failure at Richmond, by Hampton Newsom. He's going to enlighten me further about this event over the next hour. Join us for that on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. o-w-i-c-z-g at e-c-u dot e-d-u. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And
1: welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from our usual location on the third floor of the Brewster Building, which is undergoing some kind of maintenance, even as we speak. I don't know if the drilling in the walls is audible to you, but the... uh, The work crews here at East Carolina University can't drill and pound during the day when classes are underway, so they do it at night, which is also when I'm recording this show and talking to you. Uh, I'm not speaking for ECU, by the way, nor is my guest speaking for anyone but himself. We always do it that way here on Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, So if, if at some point the drilling actually... Breaks through the wall into my office here on the third floor of the Brewster Building. Then we'll have to uh, we'll have to adjust, but but uh, as long as it's not too loud, at your end we'll continue. It is uh, there's always something interesting happening here in Pirate Nation, uh, in Greenville, North Carolina. Last night, for example, the Pirates won a basketball game. That was unusual. They they'd lost five in a row before that. It was fun to watch that on TV. I was reading the Pirate uh, fan message board, hoist the colors, which I enjoy following. And uh, you know, if you're familiar with with uh, well any kind of social media, of course you are. People write the most insane things on these these message boards. And somebody was complaining about a football player who decided to enter the transfer portal and go somewhere else for his next season and questioning his character and a few posts down onto the board comes the player's father to say my son is graduating in may he's going to do his graduate year somewhere else Uh, he has a 3.6 gpa he's earning his degree he also helped ecu get to two bowl eligible seasons Uh, You know, before you talk about trash about people, you should know the facts. And the original poster responded, and if you're not sitting down, you'll want to be, by apologizing and saying, you're right, I should have known better. Congratulations to you and your son. Best wishes as he continues his graduate career. Obviously, people here didn't know how the Internet works. When When you do something wrong, intentionally or accidentally, you're supposed to double down uh, insult the other person uh, to, to display maturity and decency. It was so old-fashioned, I was shocked. Uh, here on campus, meanwhile, it's uh, the middle of the semester, the, uh, and, and I'm teaching this semester the Civil War course, which is fun. I've got a couple other courses where I've been assigning a... Uh, I give students an assignment every semester to write a book review where the hard part for them is choosing the book. I, I require them to go into the library, which and this is not exaggerating, some of them have literally never done uh, and and find a book that is actually an academic monograph, not not uh, popular history or historical fiction or something. And it's really quite shocking how hard the students find this assignment, but uh, but they manage. Uh, in more optimistic academic news, we've restarted the history simulation game club uh the late wade dudley my my colleague and friend retired and then and tragically passed away a couple of years ago used to have students come into the history lab on friday afternoons and we i would join them we would play history-based games and i'm trying to restart that uh last friday we played a game called blockade runner in which all the players represent uh, uh southern entrepreneurs trying to make money by running the blockade and still bringing in enough war goods to keep the confederate government happy and to keep the uh, confederate war effort going actually it it was a fascinating game it it uh, it showed how a game can reflect a a thesis about what uh, what motivated people during the blockade it was uh, surprisingly interesting I'd, I'd never seen it before and the student brought it in Uh, So uh, this week we're going to play a different game on uh, campaigns in Virginia in 1862. And we'll see if we can uh, uh, maybe learn something from that as well. You can learn something, uh, and I can learn something too, by listening to our guests on this show, who uh, next week will include Eric Michael Burke. He will be here on February 1st, 2023 with his first book. It's about uh, the 15th Army Corps called Soldiers from Experience, Forging of Sherman's 15th Army Corps. And then uh, we've got some invitations out that are hanging fire for the 8th. I'll let you know when we get that squared away. On February 15th, Gary Gallagher comes back to the show for the 105th time. No, the 5th time, I believe. Uh, With his new edition of Bruce Catton's Army of the Potomac trilogy, and on february 22nd we will welcome rebecca plant and francis clark they are co-authors of a book called of age boy soldiers and military power in the civil war era interesting topics Uh, in you can always find out about what's there by going to civil war no don't go there go to uh impedimentsofwar.org and there you find the website there you find the Crucial buttons that say "Donate Here." Click on those, and you can you can send money to the Civil War Talk Radio Miscellaneous Fund, fund for uh, uh, for theoretically for purchasing books if a publisher is so. Callous as not to send me a review copy. I will go out and buy it myself. Uh, but normally they, they, they show up here. And then I use the money for bourbon, uh, as we've talked about many times on the show. So feel free to contribute to that. It is not tax deductible. Tax season is upon us. Uh, do not claim it. Uh, not, not, no, just don't do it. It's not legal. Uh, let's talk to our guest tonight, Hampton Newsom, who's coming back. Uh, for I think the third time, his new book is called "Gettysburg's Southern Front:
3: Opportunity and Failure at Richmond, Hampton." Are you there? I am. Thanks for having me, Jerry, and congrats on approaching the six uh, hundredth show. I believe that's the number. Oh, and I, I'm a long time. I was <laughs> a long time listener before I started writing these books, and and it's uh, you know for a lot of us, the Civil War never gets old, and just having that resource of all those interviews. Uh,
1: it's just fantastic. So, congrats. Well, thank you very much. It, it is uh, shocking to me how, how fast it has gone by, compiling these shows. And and it is, as you say, it never gets old. I, if I didn't enjoy it, I wouldn't do it. It's, it's always fun, and, and books like yours uh, certainly contribute to that. Uh, but while I'm on the topic, I mentioned earlier uh, the simulation games uh, that I've uh, We've got some students playing. Uh, you designed some games many years ago, uh, brigade-level simulations of some battles, and, and and they are, in my view, among the best ever done in that genre. Is there any chance you would reprint those or go into partnership with Civil War Talk Radio? Send me the rights. I'll get it done. <laughs> it will make we'll make dozens of dollars.
3: <laughs> Do- dozens, um, at least yeah. I. I I don't think, I, I have never, uh, I think we, when we talked a while back about this, I kind of started writing books and, and moved the game design aside, but I, I, it's still something that I find very interesting. So I haven't closed the door on that, particularly if, um, you know, I find myself with some more free time as uh, maybe sometime in the future as retirement gets closer. We'll see.
1: Okay. Well, that's good to hear, though. I, I always did, did enjoy playing those games. Uh, but I also very much enjoyed reading your books, uh, and, and today's book is no exception. The, the title, Gettysburg's Southern Front, it is sort of intriguing, and the subtitle, Opportunity and Failure at Richmond, again, uh, uh, it, it's all kind of a tease. What, what's the Give us the, the, the elevator pitch for what actually happens in this book. The, the
3: overview yeah, the, so this is something i I when I give talks on um, the groups uh, as I was working on this book, I would ask them I would ask them did did you know that and these are very knowledgeable audiences did you know that during the Gettysburg campaign there was a force of twenty thousand u s troops just miles outside Richmond conducting an operation against Richmond and I will get A few uh, hands that go up, but generally it's something that's not, that people don't know much about. And in a nutshell, uh, this book and and that operation was uh, involved the uh, troops from the Department of Virginia under John Dix that came um, up the peninsula during the Gettysburg Campaign, uh, directed by orders from uh, Halleck in Washington. And they came to Richmond with very ambiguous orders. But the primary uh, goal was to uh, cut the supply lines or the the railroads that were kind of connecting Lee to Richmond, his tether, uh, and also perhaps uh, threaten Richmond itself. So the spoiler alert is that. Well,
1: well let, let's hold not, off on that. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, okay. I, I guess people, I guess you're. I see where you're going with that. I guess people <laughs> I, probably. If you're listening to the show, you know that Richmond didn't fall in on 1863. Exactly. Uh, but but let me ask you this: how, how did you find out about this campaign?
3: So I was, I, I try to write books on things that are, um, that have not received a lot of attention, which is kind of. Hard to do when uh, you know there are eight Robert E. Lee cookbooks or whatever, right. and uh, and uh, I this particular idea came from a veteran researcher, Bryce Sudiro, who's done a lot of yeah work on him. the Petersburg campaign. And Bryce, uh, he knows a lot and he has a lot of ideas. And he said, "Well, what about uh, you know the the Black Blackberry Raid, uh, the, you know this this attack at Richmond during the Gettysburg campaign?" and I have to say, I said, what attacks on Richmond during the Gettysburg campaign? And when I looked into it, I realized that not only was it an interesting military campaign, I mean, it's not a, there are not a lot of huge battles, but it's still a lot of things going on from a military perspective. But it had other issues like diplomacy and these underlying issues uh, like um, the, you know, hard war. Policies and the participation of enslaved people, but basically it just seemed like a really good story to me so i uh dug you know i dove in and and the, the and after a couple of years you know here's this book it it uh you know, with most books, as you
1: say, in the Civil War, there's already a great secondary literature. Already, historians have written about it. Uh, you point out in in this book that the, the soldiers involved wrote about it. You, you can find some things in regimental histories or memoirs, but have if any? I don't think any other major secondary historians have written any. Certainly not a monograph about this, have they?
3: There's there's no monograph about it. There are a few articles. Uh, Andy Trudeau did one, mm-hmm. um, and uh, there's there's one other. Ed, Ed Longacre did one, um, but you know not not really long articles. But it's mm-hmm. not you know. And and if you look in like if you crack open Coddington, there are a couple pages about it um, in there. Which uh, mm-hmm. but it's not gonna if you if you. Open a book on the Gettysburg Campaign. You're not always going to see mention of it. So it's it's there. It's just kind of hiding in plain sight, at least for the kinds of things that I was looking to dig up. So, for one,
1: something many people do know about the campaign is the relationship of uh, General Hooker and, and Abraham Lincoln, for example. And at the when when Hooker is commanding the Army of the Potomac across the Rappahannock uh, from Lee's army in June of 1863. And Lee starts slipping away piece by piece and, and going somewhere. Of course, the union forces don't know where, uh, at some point, hooker proposes to Lincoln. What if I just go and take Richmond while Lee is gone and let him go ahead and take Washington, essentially. Uh, so, so there's a proposal to, to, to swap Queens here, uh, is is that what's going yeah. mm-hmm. on, basically? Let's take Richmond while it's empty?
3: I think that, so Halleck's, there is that debate with Hooker and, and Lincoln, and we know who wins that. Um, right. And uh, so Halleck, Halleck is, Lee's moving north, Halleck is trying to, you know, he's the general in chief, that's his. His um, mm-hmm. his role up in D.C., so he's kind of coordinating things, and you know there are different opinions about how well he was coordinating things. So he, he was pretty busy at this time, but he does have this kind of half baked idea to have a uh, in, indirect operations against Lee, and this mm-hmm. is something that even people that kind of know about the Blackberry raid don't understand that Halleck actually had three operations in mind to. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of cut off or strangle Lee or at least hurt his, um, communications. And one was this operation against Richmond, uh, headed up by Dix, which ended up, you know, being a fairly large operation. Another one was directing John Foster, who was commanding things down in, uh, in New Bern and North Carolina to cut the, the Wilmington railroad, Wilmington, Mm -hmm. Weldon railroad, which was kind of this vital supply line. And then the third was to hit the, uh, the railroad out in, in uh, southwestern Virginia, uh, and then, uh, and out, out, you know, past Roanoke. And so this, this was this kind of a coordinated plan on Halleck's part.
1: It is coordinated. It's not purely a sideshow and could have had huge consequences. Uh, what we're talking about is the topic of the book, Gettysburg's Southern Front, Opportunity and Failure at Richmond, by Hampton Newsom, who's our guest tonight. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
2: America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, tune in at iHeartRadio. Listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast.
0: Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast.
2: If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts.
0: Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Hampton Newsom, author of Gettysburg's Southern Front, Opportunity and Failure at Richmond. So, Hampton, you're describing in, in our first segment uh, how Hallick, Henry Halleck up in Washington has organized uh, a three-pronged uh, maybe probe is a better word than attack uh, against Robert E. Lee's supply lines while Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia are are moving up into Pennsylvania in June 1863 and you've got the one coming from West Virginia, one from North Carolina and the one you're writing about primarily is the one coming up the Virginia Peninsula right toward Richmond. Um, So this book goes into detail about how this raid works out, how this attack on the Confederate railroads coming out of Richmond works out, uh, and one of the things you alluded to a moment ago was the reflection of Union war policy toward Southern civilians. Uh, you, you describe a raid that takes place really before just before your before the main action on a, a the the Confederate countryside near near Fredericksburg. Where the Union forces are directed by by John Dix, and Dix does not want them to to do anything with Southern civilians. Uh, so so, we've all heard of Fort Dix. Uh, who who is John Dix, and why why does he feel this way about Southern civilians?
3: So John Dix is uh, was a kind of a quintessential political general, I guess some people would mm-hmm. say. Um, although he did have military experience he was in his 60s during the war and he was in fact uh in the army during uh the war of 1812 and actually participated in that as as a very young person i can't remember Mm -hmm. exactly how old he was and he had a very distinguished uh career doing lots of things including public office and he uh right before lincoln came in um Dix was the, he, he was, uh, the secretary of treasury and he was a very, uh, able administrator and, uh, savvy policymaker. Uh, he was as treasury secretary at the beginning of the rebellion, he actually, um, there was, there were threats to the revenue cutters in new Orleans and, Mm -hmm. and Dix, he said, um, He sent a dispatch to the people down there saying, to to his his people there, there saying, if anyone attempts to haul down the American flag, shoot him on the spot. And this became Mm. kind of a a rallying cry. It would appear on buttons and things like that. So he was a fairly well-known figure, but he was not the person that you probably wanted to be conducting an active military operation. And he was also, he was a war Democrat. He was... Very supportive of the Lincoln administration, although he disagreed with Lincoln on a lot of different policies. And like many people with his political view, he did not think that um, the right thing to do was to to conduct a, quote-unquote, hard war against the civilians, because it, he was kind of in line with McClellan in this thinking, because he his view was that, well— if we can just wrap this thing up, we can get the, uh, the, the Southern, um, kind of leadership or the, the, um, the, the Southern leaders back into the fold. Um, but if we, you know, treat them poorly, it won't happen. And this, he held kind of held on to this, uh, view, uh, early in the war. I think it eventually kind of eroded, but in 1863, he certainly still felt strongly about this and he would give these orders to his subordinates, not, uh, when they went out on raids and things like that, to be very mindful about civilian property and things like that. But those orders weren't always followed. <laughs> they weren't. And and that particular raid you're talking about, the mm-hmm. Ayliss raid, which I included in the book because it, it kind of set the stage for that, that tension um, that you saw with Dix. But it also allowed the uh, uh, introduction of this very interesting character named Charles Tevis, who uh, yeah. commanded that raid and was was uh burned a lot of farms and uh and created some uh, concern for Dix. Uh this was a guy who had spent a lot of time in uh Europe as a mercenary and just a very colorful figure but um but it 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 shows that the 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 A-list raid in addition to showing these issues about the broader policy, it also shows that there were there were things going on all the time and um outside of the big campaigns and battles there were little raids and skirmishes and things like that um so it was just kind of an interesting to focus on that and uh, I, you know giving it a chapter there in the book
1: uh, it, and it's a very interesting chapter again showing in detail how these soldiers interact with the uh, the people they meet, uh, Virginians, both black and white, free and enslaved, and, and uh, uh, how that goes on. It does foreshadow uh, things that happen in the larger rate that follows. One thing I will say about this book is the, the maps are great. Uh, they really do help explain what's going on uh, at different scales. You know, a big map showing where Lee's army is while this is happening, and then detailed maps where a single company might be located. Uh, it, anyone who reads Civil War material knows how important it is to have maps that uh that, that track the action and, and the, these are excellent so just want to throw that out as we go uh
3: thank you i i had to actually learn a new i do my own maps, so ah. and i had switched over to a new program i was a little worried it wasn't going to work out but it seemed to have worked out
1: thank no, they, they they came out great they're they're very effective the uh so, so after the the Tevis raid, which sort of sets the table, then you finally see Dix going forward, and he, he's got these, what seem to me rather ambiguous orders. What is it clear what he's supposed to do? He's got twenty thousand soldiers, and they're they're marching up the Virginia Peninsula toward Richmond. We know that much, um, but specifically, what, it, what is it clear what they're supposed to do?
3: I. I think that's a great question, and I think that's something that Dix wasn't sure of, and I'm not even sure the person who wrote the orders, Halleck, was even sure. The, Halleck, um, the, the, the orders were literally, you know, take your forces and concentrate to threaten Richmond by seizing or destroying their railroad bridges over the North and South Anna rivers and do them all the damage possible. And so there's a little bit, looks like you're, Supposed to go after bridges, but there's something about threatening Richmond, and so they're kind of open-ended. And the interesting thing is that Halleck is so busy. I assume so busy with um, I know he's busy with Gettysburg,
2: mm-hmm. with the
3: you know everything that's going on up there. That after sending those orders to Dix, he kind of checks in with. These were sent in the middle of June, mm-hmm. and he kind of checks in with Dix you know, maybe like once a week after that, and there's not a lot of communication after that. So Dix is kind of on his own to figure out what to do at Richmond. So let me
1: change gears for a minute, but inside of Richmond, uh, 20,000 soldiers sounds like a lot, but the town does have defenders. What's the defense situation like in Richmond after Lee is gone? It's
3: it's not as red bear as you would think. So um, so Dix, when he, he shows caution about going after Richmond, he's being very reasonable. So Richmond has its kind of standing garrison at the time, um, the local defense forces. Uh, you know, you see different names for them. But there are also several veteran brigades from Lee's Army and from the Department of North Carolina. You know, These brigades kind of switch around. It's hard to keep track. Um, but there are at least three uh, veteran brigades, Ransom, Cook, and Davis's brigade at Richmond, and then um, you also have Montgomery Courses Brigade, which is kind of stationed north at um, Hanover Junction. So in total, you've got more than 10,000 um, men protecting Richmond, and you also have several commanders, but the, the, um, the one that stands out for this operation is D.H. Uh, Hill. And D.H. Uh, Hill, uh, not... You know maybe not the greatest sandbox skills of any uh commander, but certainly very confident and and uh and certainly performs well uh performed well during this uh campaign well, i i think that
1: understates his his uh his people skills are are not not what you're looking for necessarily uh uh but he does command the troops effectively when when he has to so uh Dix is moving against uh, a, a city that is defended, that is fortified. And as, as you point out, he's not actually going straight toward the fortifications into downtown Richmond, but heading north toward Hanover, uh, north of the, the city where the railroad goes north. Now, if Lee is in Pennsylvania, though, is a, the railroad doesn't go straight from Richmond up to Pennsylvania. Uh, how, how does breaking a railroad just north of Richmond affect Lee two states away?
3: So this is something that I found interesting because it's not when you read studies of the Gettysburg campaign there's not a lot of attention paid to Lee's logistical tale. Right. Uh and uh and so the railroad in Virginia you know at that time you do have two lines heading north from Richmond but one of them goes straight up to Fredericksburg and kind of ends close to there. And then the other one, the one that's important to this discussion, uh, around the uh, between the North and South Anna River at Hanover Junction breaks west, goes to Gordonsville, um, and and there meets the Orange and Alexandria. And you know there are lots of names and lots of lines, but essentially it goes through. If you follow that, you can get to Charlottesville and then to Stanton in the Valley, or you can go up and go to Culpeper. Stanton was kind of the main uh, depot that uh, Lee relied on to some extent during the campaign, mostly because uh, the 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 uh, the wagon traffic moving from Stanton to up into uh, Pennsylvania was uh, would be kind of shielded by the mountains there, and you know Lee, as everyone well, as many people know, there was a lot of foraging in Pennsylvania. Um, Mm -hmm. Provisions were not necessarily Problem. It wasn't a rations problem, but that you know there wasn't there wasn't an ammunition store in Pennsylvania for Lee, so right. he did need to rely on this connection. And um, so the the risk for Lee was that if you break the 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 bridges over the um, the South Anna River, just north of Richmond, then you make it kind of difficult to get that material to and Now there are other railroads that might be used. there are different gauges. It's you know there are a lot of issues there, but this could have done damage, particularly, and this is a conclusion kind of in the book, you know, particularly if Lee had, if there had been more fighting than there was, um, mm-hmm. the uh, some of the damage done by Dix may have materially affected Lee's uh, chances in, in Pennsylvania.
1: Yeah, I got the impression, so just describing it, uh, and listeners follow along on your, your maps, if you don't have the book, get one, uh, The the... You, you go north from Richmond up to Hanover Junction, bare left or west, and now you're heading to uh, Gordonsville, uh, Charlottesville, eventually get into the, the Shenandoah Valley at Stanton, and, and the railroad ends there. But then you've got the, the, the paved valley turnpike going north. The wagons can go on. So Lee's got a whole pipeline full of supplies coming up to him. Even if the railroad is cut in June, it's not... It's not going to affect Lee right away. The the supply is already in the line, but eventually it would it would catch up.
3: That's right, and then, and you so you see accounts of of wagon trains heading um, north, you know, up and down the valley is a confusing thing, but right. north, north along of, the valley. Um, yeah. and but I think most of those um, that you see reports of had started from Richmond before Dix's operation, but this, so that, that's the, the issue with the, you know, with the, uh, the threats of the railroad. I, I do, before I forget, I, I want to mention that Dix did consider going after Richmond directly as mm. may have been implied, may or may not have been implied by Halleck's um, orders and Dix held several uh, meetings with his officers to talk about this. It wasn't a real popular option, for them, but it's something that he seriously considered. And the officials in Washington were watching this operation very closely, and some of them felt like there was a real possibility that Dix would uh, go at Richmond and perhaps take Richmond. And there was also discussion about, well, maybe we should replace Dix with Hooker, or maybe we should bring Foster up from North Carolina because they would have a better chance at actually taking Richmond.
1: So that's an important point that this raid that that we seemingly know so little about or think so little about today uh, was was, if not front page news, it was certainly in the minds of decision makers in Washington. They're aware of it, uh, and they're talking about it in 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 their councils. Now the there there is a cavalry raid that is sort of an offshoot of the main raid. And uh, you described that in some some detail. It's, it's an interesting story. Uh, there are a lot of sub-stories throughout this book uh, that, that keep it interesting, including the capture of the, the son of Robert E. Lee. Uh, I'm going to glide over that for now. Uh, listeners, there's another reason to buy the book and find out about that. Uh, when the main raid itself gets going you describe how uh, you've got the the fourth corps under general Keyes and the seventh corps under general getty and when i read that you know two corps that's that's a lot of guys you've got seven infantry corps up at gettysburg but two that that's this is not small change you got thirty thousand soldiers moving upon richmond uh but but they don't all go straight toward toward Richmond as you just said. The, the council of war says otherwise. What strategy do they follow then? What, or what's the operational plan?
3: So so Dix, he follows. So the first the first when they first land, they send out a cavalry raid that does burn the Virginia Central. Samuel Spear, who mm-hmm. is um, uh, energetic officer, gets that done, but cannot get the other span, The the um, the the Richmond Fredericksburg and Potomac the RFNP bridge, which is a couple miles away from that, and so Dix does launch this huge infantry raid. Nineteen thousand men, of, of, you know, are under his command, and most mm-hmm. of them go on this. Now there are two prongs to it. One, he sends Erasmus Keyes and the Fourth Corps uh, directly at Richmond towards Bottoms Bridge, and this is kind of uh, uh, you know kind of the decoy column. Uh, and then he sends the larger column north and basically following where the uh where spears went uh on and this is under uh, George Washington Getty it's about 10,000 men up through King William County um and into uh, Hanover County to the um to the to burn the that remaining bridge and that remaining bridge today is right where the I-95 goes over, um, the, uh, South Anna, it's just West of there. And so that's the plan. Um, the, the problem is that DHL is kind of reading ahead about what's happening and, uh, and uses the interior lines and the, the railroad lines that are available around Richmond and manages to shuttle, um, Shuttle forces around and kind of block these attempts. Now, there are several We're going to
1: kind of interesting. A, Go ahead, sir. We're gonna have to take a short break. We'll come back, sure. find out what happens with D.H. Hill at Gettysburg's Southern Front Opportunity and Failure at Richmond, title of the book we're discussing, with Hampton Newsom, who's the author. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: That's p r o k o p o w i c z g at ecu. dot edu. Now back to Civil War Talk Radio,
1: and welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Hampton Newsom, author of Gettysburg's Southern Front: Opportunity and Failure at Richmond. We've been discussing what's happening in. Uh, July, late June and early July, 1863. We all know that Gettysburg is happening, Vicksburg is happening. But uh few of us, at least us, including me, did not know about the uh, thousands of Union soldiers marching directly on Richmond, coming up the peninsula. Uh, they go up the York River. They, they keep going the, uh, eventually to uh, the White House landing. That, by the way, uh, Hampton. That that's the same route that McCollin took. Didn't didn't he have troops at White House Landing in 1862?
3: That's correct. That was his main base, and it was a very convenient place for a base because it was right on the railroad there.
1: So so they're 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 going in the footsteps of their of the year earlier, and uh, as you say, the first uh, the the two prong attack. One one is intended to uh, at least draw attention that does draw the attention of, of d H Hill, and you were suggesting that hill Hill gets the better of uh, of of Keyes's troops
3: yeah I, I, so in a nutshell Keyes, he 's supposed to conduct the feint now all of this is happening on July first so this hmm. is these operations are happening while the fighting is going on at Gettysburg, and Keyes heads out he 's supposed to make a very strong demonstration at Bottoms Bridge, which is a kind of key crossing of Chickahominy, east of Richmond. But he just kind of, he's slow, and D.H. Hill comes out and attacks him at this little place called uh, Crump's Crossroads in New Kent County, which is um, east of um, east of Bottoms Bridge. So Keyes doesn't really even get there. Then he spends several days kind of sitting there, kind of chasing his tail and writing Dix, who's only like two miles away or four miles away, about how at any moment he's going to be attacked at his, on his flank, and Dix kind of loses patience with him. Dix is mostly worried that Keyes in action is going to open up the White House landing base to a Confederate attack. But so Keyes, his, his operations are utterly... Um, uh, 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 kind of an utter failure, and it will be the last, it's the last uh, time he uh, has any kind of command during the war. Now, the second one, just to kind of finish out the right. military operations here, the second part, the main event, is the, uh, is Getty's raid up to burn the second remaining bridge north of Richmond, and that is a fairly large force, 10,000 men, and that's a very strange one, um, because along the way, Getty, get, he kind of uh, conducts what I call a, a breadcrumb strategy or follows a breadcrumb strategy and leaves fairly large packets of men along the way at different places, bridges or towns. And by the time he gets to the, the target, the bridge, on July 4th, so this is the day after Pickett's charge, uh, awesome. he... Uh, he, his column gets there at night. It's been whittled down from 10,000 to about, um, uh, three or 4,000. And Getty is not even with the column. He stays back at, uh, at Hanover. And when the attack is made on the bridge that night, it's only made by a few companies, only a few companies, New York companies are committed to the attack, uh, and it fails. Uh, so it's, um, that it's a puzzling operation to me. Get, Getty certainly later in the war uh, earns a, a, a good reputation in fighting in uh, Virginia, but this is not something that um, r- really uh, makes him look good. So he they, he comes back, and uh, that's the that's the so you've got the engagement you've got the first attack at uh, the Virginia Central Spears Cavalry, then you've got Keys at Crump's Crossroads, and then you've got this. A night attack by Getty at the R.F.N.P. All a failure, except for that initial uh, burning of the bridge, and uh, and that's the end of Dix's operation against Richmond. But it does take about a week or two, and lots of contingencies and lots of different movements and and things like that. The, the uh, your description of Getty's
1: expedition. Uh, Includes a a wonderful graphic. You use a chart to show how he starts out with 10,000, and then then the next box he's dropped down to 8,500 because he's left a brigade to garrison something. The next box, it's down to 6,500. next box, it's 5,000. By the time they get to actually attack the bridge, as you say, there's just a few hundred soldiers. The the spear point of this 10,000 strong force is just a few hundred, uh, and needless to say, it does fail. Uh, this is also so it's that, that Getty wing that where the troops find all the blackberries, uh, hence the, the name Blackberry Raid.
3: That That's right. And so it's in early July in central Virginia, it was very hot, particularly on um, July 2nd and 3rd. And there were um, dozens, if not more, men in Getty's column who actually died from sunstroke during mm. the marching. Through King William County, um, but it was also the time when the blackberries were ripe. And account after account from the soldiers talks about how they would stop the side of the road and and eat as many blackberries as they could. They, they, were, they were more more than they could possibly you know uh, carry away with them. And so that so the soldiers that participated in this operation. Uh, came to call it the blackberry raid so that's where the name comes from um but it was a a, a a grueling uh several days for them and it may have had something to do that may have had some impact on getty's decision uh i i um could not figure out why getty did not join the final column and perhaps he also suffered from the heat uh and and was and had to be uh, had to stay back
1: now, there's a subtext throughout this book that appears in, in numerous chapters. The, the these soldiers aren't marching in a vacuum. They're marching through an occupied territory. People live there. Civilians live there, uh, including a lot of African-American civilians. And And you show again and again how the African-American population of Virginia interacted with this campaign and, and the impact they had. Uh, now they weren't soldiers, as I understand. There were there were no USCT regiments, were there?
3: Correct. They were were not in Virginia at the time. This was so in the summer. There's recruiting going on, mm-hmm. um, but Dix, John Dix, was not. Uh, he didn't really embrace a recruitment for the USCTs, and there, so he had no units uh, there with him at the time. But but this but people
1: are involved as individuals. Yeah.
3: So. Yeah. So this is a this is something that when I started the project, it, you know, you, when you do a project, you're like, okay, well, here's the ba- here are the basic events you will, I want to mm-hmm. look at, and here are the issues that are kind of interesting um, to, that that are related. And you know, I try in my books to tie everything into the what's happening politically at the time and and other issues. And but the involvement in the enslaved people in um, Central Virginia was not something that I was really planning on, and I. Um, but as I found accounts and did research, I found that the enslaved people along the the route of march for all of these units were always or almost always coming and helping the um, the federal officers. They would identify the Confederate troop locations. They describe the road network, um, and they talk about like, the local geography, the fords and rivers. And they would also um, in, in emancipate themselves. They'd leave, um, leave the plantations and join the columns. And uh, and you don't see a lot in the official reports about it, but there were thousands and thousands of people that freed themselves during this operation and came back to White House landing at the time. Um, So it's kind of interesting that there was a, there's a great book, uh, Glenn Brasher uh, talked about the same issues um, the year before in the same area. And Mm -hmm. so I was, I found it interesting the number of um, people who were freeing themselves during Dix's operation when uh, McClellan's men were over much of the same area just the year before. But I think it just shows how complicated the whole process of, uh, emancipation was for these people, but um, but it just uh, it just it stood out to me, and and uh, and I, it's an important part of the story. And it's not right. unusual, obviously, it, it's something that happened in all regions wherever the U.S. troops were throughout the war. Well, I, I, I want to agree with you about Glenn
1: Brasher's book, where he explains how the emancipation grows out of the Peninsula Campaign and the interaction of black civilians and and the uh, union soldiers and you know when i'm when i'm mentoring a, a graduate student writing a thesis i will tell them if you're if the evidence takes you away from your original idea and and you find you have to move in a different direction that's a sign you're doing it exactly right that, that you're letting the evidence tell the story and and i know when i'm doing research when that happens it's a great moment like okay this is here's here's what here's what they're really talking about and 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 your your description of how the the civilians and soldiers interacted really conveys that happening here uh you mentioned politics and we don't even have time to talk about it tonight uh, but listeners this gives you an idea how rich this book is uh there's another whole subtext that while all this is going on you've got the uh vice president of the confederacy trying to go visit with abraham lincoln in washington uh simultaneous to all these events and it's it's just uh, it, it hard, hard to uh, I, I guess one of the great virtues of the book is it shows all our eyes are on Gettysburg when it's happening uh, with the occasional glance westward to Vicksburg we know that's going to surrender on July 4 right after Gettysburg is over and we just don't look away and you've directed our attention back toward Richmond where things are going on and back toward uh, the Stevens mission to Washington that's happening at the same time. And, and just reminding us that so much goes on all at once uh, during the Civil War, even when we think we know all about it. Uh, so what, what did you conclude out of all this? Uh, if somebody said, well, well, were, they attacked and it failed, so nothing to see here, uh, i I think it's funny to see here, but I, what what would you say there is?
3: Well, I think that uh, what the project showed to me was how something that I think you know is, is clearly um, a sideshow to the big show uh, mm-hmm. is something worth really delving into and looking at and and at the time, the people that were involved. They they saw it as something important because it, there there was potential for success, potential for spectacular failure for the on the um, Confederate side, and so looking through that lens, it's interesting to me to, um, to analyze this, and also the the what it it says about the 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 broader picture of Lee's logistics. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the things that um, that the that commanders need to worry about. I think this really opened a window, at least for me, and to you know those broader issues. Well, it, it's I found it a a fascinating book,
1: and I mentioned the maps already. One other thing I wanted to be sure to say was the the organization of the book. The 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 chapters are numerous but brief, and they have subheads in them that. Uh, usually they're quotes from, from people that lend color, but it makes the book, is it, extraordinarily well organized and and easy to, to grasp what's going on, and I, I enjoyed reading it for that reason as well. Uh, we have just a minute left. Are you working on anything for the future?
3: I am. I'm, I'm about a year or so into, uh, I, I thought I'd maybe write about something that people had actually heard about before. <laughs> and so, I'm I'm working on a Book about the Appomattox campaign and focusing uh, on several different issues, uh, federal command decisions, and things. Sheridan Scouts and uh, William Bernies, the US, USCT division, and things like that. We'll see where that goes. It's still there's so much material, but uh, mm. it's been it's been interesting. I've I've enjoyed working on it.
1: Well, well, keep us posted on that, and, and we'll, we'll talk about it again soon, I hope. Uh, tonight we've been talking with Hampton Newsom. He's the author of Gettysburg's Southern Front, Opportunity and Failure at Richmond. It is a really uh, interesting and enlightening book, uh, especially if you think you, you, you've, you've read it all about 1863. Uh, you'll want to read this one. Uh, Hampton, it's always good talking with you. Thanks so much for being on the show.
3: Thanks for having
1: me. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.